Amen. Well, let's take our Bible this morning. Let's make our way to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. We're picking up in our study through the book of Jonah. We began a few weeks ago, and uh, today we are looking at verse 11 down through verse number 16. Uh, I've enjoyed uh, breaking down just the things that we see within this text and, and um, how rich it is with truth and application for us. And uh, chapter 1 really, I think, has, has the most meat to the story. We'll definitely see more through the remaining chapters. But I want us to look at uh, verse 11 down through verse number 16 this morning. And uh, the title of the message is very simple, Casting Jonah Overboard. Because it is that time. Jonah is going to be cast overboard, and rightly so. And uh, so let's read our text together, and we'll dig into the scriptures and, and see what we can behold. Verse 11, he says, the Word of God says, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let, not, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows." Now, you imagine for a moment that you are in a life-threatening situation. There is an immediate danger to your life, and you are scared, you're fearful, you don't understand why you're in that predicament. And then it comes to your understanding that the whole reason that you're in that danger is because of someone else close to you. How would you feel towards that person? How would you react towards that person? Most of us would probably be a little upset with that person. They're putting my life at risk. We'd probably ask them why they put us in such a dangerous position. And these sailors did that in a sense. They essentially asked, why have you done this? Maybe we'd even give that person a little piece of our minds with our words, right? Tell them how it is, as we might say. This is the scenario that we find in our text. These sailors are headed to Tarshish on what they thought was just a typical journey. They're used to this. This is their livelihood carrying cargo and different things of trade to this place and a distant land. It was just another day on the job for them. But this time is very, very much different than other times. They are in grave danger as this terrible storm comes upon them unlike any they've ever experienced. They have done all they can to try and survive. They have called on their gods. They have thrown their possessions and their cargo and their profit overboard they're doing everything they can. They try to wake up Jonah, get an answer from him. He's just silent. So they cast lots, and as we looked in our last message, the lot fell where? On Jonah. Coincidence or providence? We know the answer to that, don't we, church? God is sovereign even over the lots that are cast. And so they ask him, tell us about yourself. They ask him questions. That would be convincing, convicting questions in verse 10. And, and Jonah reveals to them who he is who his God is, where he's come from, and he also revealed to them that, hey, 
I'm running from the presence of the Lord. I'm running from this God who created the sea and the dry land and ultimately has brought the storm on us. So now they know. They know the storm is Jonah's fault, not their own, even though they have enough sin to be worthy of such a storm. But they know that Jonah has brought this on them. And you might consider in this text how this must have struck them. Put yourself in the sailors' shoes on this ship, what they're thinking, what they're feeling. We might look at this account and think of how we would respond in such a situation with such news. We look at these sailors, and they don't respond exactly how we might think at first. Nevertheless, they come to the realization that there really is only one way to calm this storm, and it's that Jonah is going to have to go overboard. So I want to point out a few things from the text that I think are significant, I think would be helpful to us, and even points of application from this text of Scripture. Number one I want you to see is the mercy of the sailors, of the pagan sailors, the mercy of the pagan sailors. And two things about this heading. You'll notice firstly about them that they knew the solution to the storm now. They know the solution because Jonah tells them what that solution is. You look at verse 11. They ask Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? Now, since the storm is obviously Jonah's fault, Jonah must have the answer. So they don't appeal to their own reasoning anymore. They've already tried calling on their gods and everything physical they can do as far as making the ship lighter. So they come to Jonah and they ask, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? They want to know Jonah's response. Because it's Jonah's God, not their gods, but Jonah's God who created the sea and the dry land. And therefore, he's the one who has power over the sea and over dry land. And obviously, the weather, the storm, right? Jonah must know. And whatever this solution must be, they need to find it quickly. There's no time to waste. Why is there no time to waste? Well, look at verse 11. What does it say? It says that the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Now, it's already bad breaking up the ship to the point that it's about to, about to sink. It could break and, and, and sink. It's already bad, but here as time is progressing, the storm is not decreasing, it is increasing. It's violent, it's might, it's power, the raging of the waves, the, the utterance of the wind. All of it is, is, is only increasing. And when a storm increases, there is an increase of fear and concern and, and necessity to do something about it. You know, anytime we have a storm come through, I'm, I'm one that loves thunderstorms. I love listening to the rain, watching the lightning, hearing the thunder crack. And usually the kids, you know, they're, they enjoy it too for some degree. But then you have one of those really, really loud bangs and it just shakes the house. And guess what happens when that happens. Boy, they're at your, literally hugging your legs. What are we going to do, right? And, and so they're thinking a tornado's coming or something. The more storm increases, the greater the fear, the greater the anticipation of what should we do. We have to do something. You have to do something in this situation. So what is the solution? In verse 12, Jonah says to them, pick me up, hurl me, hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. See, Jonah not only had the answer for the storm, Jonah is the answer for the storm. He's got to get off the boat. 
And since the storm is because of Jonah, he says he's got to go overboard. But notice that Jonah says here, he says that they need to hurl him into the sea. This is another one of those repeated words through this chapter. In verse number 4, what do we find? The Lord hurled the storm at Jonah. And now Jonah says, you need to hurl me into the sea. You need to cast me into the sea. And you read later, that's exactly what they did. Same words used. This, this hurling of Jonah, this hurling of the storm. Now, we don't see the Lord tell Jonah this, but it seems to be the obvious conclusion. If Jonah's presence is causing the storm, Jonah has to go. Jonah's got to go. Now, you know, there's a great principle here regarding, really, sin in our own life, too. Sin always brings great trouble to a person's life, especially if one is living in blatant rebellion against God. You understand that sin is never worth holding on to, no matter how much you enjoy it. Because it always has a bad result, a bad ending, a bad, a bad circumstance that it will bring on your life. You see, sin brings great trouble. It isn't worth it. Just as sin was in the camp of Israel, Achan, and brought defeat to the entire nation, so sin continuing in our life will only bring great turmoil and trouble. And the New Testament constantly warns about this. Jonah should have repented of his sin, but we think about ourselves. Romans 6.21, he, he, Paul says to the believers in Rome about their past, he says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. In other words, you look back at your life of sin or look at sin in general and and what is the end result of those things? Is it worth holding on to those things? No, it's not. So whatever our cherished sin is, like Jonah, we ought to cast it overboard. We ought not to hold on to it. We ought to put it to rest. These sailors realize that Jonah is the one causing them the issue, but they're not getting rid of Jonah just yet. And I think there's some reasoning for that. I'll get to in a moment. But Jonah knows that without a doubt, it's his fault. He says, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, if you knew that you were the real reason other lives were in danger and at risk, how would you feel? What would you do? I imagine any caring person would say, man, I need to fix this. I need to do something about this. This is my fault. But what do we see Jonah do? We would think that Jonah here, shouldn't Jonah be breaking down in repentance and confession to God? We would think that he'd be grieving over this, that he's put other people's lives at risk. But do we see that from Jonah? No, we don't see any fear in Jonah, nor do we see any repentance in Jonah. Jonah doesn't even pray. He doesn't even pray. Now, he could have repented and prayed and said, Oh, Lord, I realize what a tragic thing I've done in rebelling from you and running from Nineveh. Forgive me, bring me to dry land, and I'll go. He could have repented. But does Jonah do that? No, he doesn't. It seems as if Jonah would rather drown than go to Nineveh because he knows that if he's thrown overboard, guess what? He's not going to be able to tread water for real long. He may not tread water at all in waves such as this. If Jonah must be cast into the sea and he knows it's his fault, why didn't he just cast himself into the sea? He is very careless here. Now, all of this shows something to us. 
It shows us the hardness of Jonah's heart. Though Jonah confesses his guilt here, understand, he is not repentant of his deeds. He is not truly repentant in this scene. He is no more repentant here than a thief who confesses that he stole because he got caught. Jonah's caught. God's caught him. He's cornered him into a position where there's no other option. The ship ain't going to Tarshish. It's going down. Jonah ain't making it. And if it goes down, the sailors are going with him. Jonah knows he's in a corner. This is the only response. And so Jonah, with no other option, he proposes this solution because there is no other way out of this. And here's the reality for us Christians is to realize this, that none of us are immune to having our hearts hardened just like Jonah was. That indeed is the great danger we need to be aware of. Because Jonah, if you were to look at him without a Christian lens, you'd have thought, who's this guy? Does he really know the one true God? He's hardened. You and I can become hardened. The Hebrew author said this in Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that there, there is the key here, okay? Sin in its very nature is deceptive. You know what deception means? It means that it's fooled you. Sin fools us into thinking that whatever sin it is that I may have, that it's really maybe not that bad. And all along, while you're giving in to that deception of sin, you're only hardening your heart in that sin. Jonah's here was absolute rebellion and running from God. He's running from God thinking, oh, guess what? There's a spot open on this boat. I must be okay. Not that big a deal. I'm going to get on this ship and go to Tarshish. Even though God said to go to Nineveh, I'm going to go to Tarshish. Gets on that boat, he's sleeping, and he thinks all is fine. All the while, he has hardened himself in his own disobedience. To the point, he's just careless here. Absolutely careless. Jonah was more willing to perish with these pagans than to preach to Nineveh. How tragic. So what would these sailors do? Well, if I was one of those sailors, I think I'd be grabbing Jonah and throwing him overboard immediately. You scoundrel. (laughs) Who do you think you are? After all, these pagans don't know the one true God, right? They're depraved. They're lost in their sin. So why not? Many people do far worse. But notice what they did. Letter B, we see that they fought to spare Jonah's life. They are fighting to spare Jonah's life. Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, even though they know the solution here, nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to land. Do you know what we see in these sailors towards Jonah? You see mercy. You see mercy. Now, isn't that, how ironic is this scene? How ironic is this scene? Jonah has fled the command of God to go to Nineveh because he's afraid God will show the wicked Ninevites mercy. And here these pagans are on the sea showing him mercy when he's putting their lives at risk. Old Palmer Robertson says this in his commentary. He says, he, the believer, closes his heart toward the massive metropolis of Nineveh although his people had experienced the grace of God for generations. 
He closes his heart to another people. But in dramatic contrast, these coarse sailors do everything they can to spare the life of Jonah even after he's caused the loss of their cargo and now may cause the loss of their life. These sailors are showing him mercy despite Jonah, what he's worthy of. So what are they showing us here? They see mercy, but understand that the mercy in the sailors here, these pagans, it is a mark of common grace in mankind that is given by God. Sometimes the world around us, the lost world, might show more kindness than a Christian does when a Christian is in their rebellion. This does not mean that they are saved or contributing to spiritual good, but that those outward actions, they are rooted in the common grace of God and it puts the, out, it puts the Christian really to shame who knows the saving grace of God. Common grace observes that God is at work in the world even apart from the realm of salvation. He uses people and blesses people, whether they're regenerate or not. For example, you think of the courage of the New York firefighters who sacrificed their lives to help save others in the 9-11 attacks. Many of them probably were not Christians. I would hope most of them were, but many of them probably were not. But yet their courage exceeds that of many Christians. You think of other examples. Many are fighting in the cause against abortion because they know it's wrong to murder, but they do not truly know the one true God, even though they're fighting for something that is right. Many politicians, I won't say many, I'll say some, Some seek what is morally and economically right, even though they may not be born-again believers, right? That's common grace we see in society and in the world. Now, Jesus gives instruction to the Christians in response to others in the world that is sometimes not fulfilled in the Christian, but it is seen in the unbeliever. Luke 6, 32-33, he says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Notice what he says, For even sinners love those who love them. Talking about lost people unregenerate people. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. Even unregenerate people love other people that do good to them or do good to someone, do good to the people that do good to them or love them. So, so has Jonah done good to these sailors? No, he's done nothing good to them. He's only brought evil upon them, only trouble, only harm. And yet here these sailors are doing good to him and trying to save his life. What a challenge that should be to the Christian who is to live the Christ-like life in the world. But I think we should consider also in this scenario, what's, what's their mercy grounded in? What's the reason that they're not just casting Jonah overboard? Well, I think there's a couple probabilities that I want to bring to your attention from Scripture. It could be, firstly because they know that killing another may result in their own death at the hands of justice. They know, though they are foreigners to the law of God given through Moses, they still know through natural law that murder is wrong. And that murder exacts a price of shedding blood. How do they know this? Well, here's how. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, if you would. Romans chapter 2. Paul reveals a little bit of this when it comes to morality and the law of God and people who do not have the law of God. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. 
on the day when the when when even when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You know what Paul's pointing out there? It's the law of conscience. Why is there such a thing as morality in the world, even in those that do not know God? Conscience. That is a proof and or really a a a, a evidence of God. Where does law come from? Where does morality come from? It has to come from one who is moral, one who has morality, and that is God. And so morality is a law written in the conscience of every person, even these pagans. In their mind, to cast Jonah into the sea is to kill him. They're not expecting him to swim to shore. To cast him over is murder in their eyes. Now, as you see later in verse 14 in their prayer, what do they pray to God? Lord, please don't lay innocent blood on us casting him into the sea. They did not want this guilt upon them or further punishment such as their own death. Capital punishment is also a, a reality of Scripture and law of God in the world. Genesis 9, 6, he said to Noah, whoever sheds, blood, sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Second reason, they might be showing him mercy. Here's, this is speculative, but listen. Given that the God of Jonah is all-powerful, he's all-present, and he punishes sin, what might this God do to them in this scenario if they cast him overboard? If God would bring such a severe judgment on his own servant, Jonah, what might be done to these pagans who before have never acknowledged the one true God? You know, First Peter wrote, Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 4.17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? How much greater judgment comes on those who do not know him at all? The third idea here, recognize here, is that Jonah, though he's a rebellious prophet, guess what? He is still God's servant. He still belongs to this God. What would God do to them if they cast one of this God's people into the sea to certain death? So so you think about what's racing through their minds, what they're having to reconcile with. If they handle Jonah unjustly, they may get their own form of justice from this God. With all these things that are flowing through their mind, I think they realize that discovering, (laughs) discovering the problem was only really part of the problem for them. What are we going to do about this? Should they really throw Jonah overboard, or is there another way? Although the sailors seek to salvage Jonah's life by their own might, we see in this text it's all going to be futile, isn't it? Which brings me to number two. Not only do we see the mercy of the sailors, but notice the mandate of the raging sea. The mandate of the raging sea. This is something inescapable, unavoidable. And here's, here's what we point out with this is that God's will in the sea was unstoppable. God's will in the sea here, it is unstoppable. There's nothing the sailors can do to bypass it. You notice in verse 13, I like this. <laughs> this is, there's so much that we can glean from this, but I won't give everything for time's sake. But verse 13, notice what they do. The Bible says that they rowed hard. Nevertheless, they rowed hard. Now, many of these bigger ships had oars that went out to the side. Not all of them were just sail, but they used a combination of both sometimes. The Hebrew text here indicates that the sailors, when they rowed hard, they're digging into the waves as hard as they can. They're digging into the waves and digging into the waves. Now, we can just imagine the scene, picture it, of these sailors 
taking the rose, and exhausting themselves, trying with every ounce of energy and strength in them to row back to land through this storm. Now, I've been on a few rowboats before, small ones. And even in calm waters, that's quite a workout, isn't it? It's not a lenient task. Water itself is a very powerful substance. It's heavy. Even when it's peaceful. You imagine rowing against the raging storm in a larger ship and how daunting that effort would be. It's impossible. What's the result of their exhaustive rowing? Though they rowed with all their might, what do we read in verse 13? I love these three words. They could not. That's just it. (laughs) They could not. God's will here is unstoppable. They can't row to land. What? They could not. Now, Now, ponder that reality for a moment. Man, with all of his tries to overturn the waves and the wind sent by God, but they could not. Because it's impossible to overturn that which God ordains. That which is of his power. It was a futile effort. And here's something interesting. Look at the rest of the verse. The sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So while they're trying with all their might, this gets worse and worse, gets stronger and stronger against them. It's like God's just pressing his thumb even tighter and tighter and tighter. So you're not going anywhere. You ain't going anywhere. You know, it's fun to play with children. Sometimes they want to arm wrestle me. And I used to do this with my dad too. And with little children, you know, like Jubilee or David, I'll arm wrestle with them and you know, they'll push with all their might with one arm. And it does, it's nothing for me, right? I'm an adult. And then they'll try two arms. That doesn't go nowhere. And then they decide to put their whole body on this side and just pull, right? Well, now, now, now I'm up to the challenge of basically lifting their whole weight, which I'm still able to do. They can't take their dad just yet. They'll eventually get there probably. But it made me think of this scenario, how the, the sailors, are they're pushing and pushing and God don't even have to move. <laughs> he doesn't have to move. And if they want to row harder, he says, you know what? I'm going to push down a little further to make this storm even harder. I'm going to show you plain reality that you ain't going nowhere. You're not going nowhere. And, and what you find with this is that the sailors come to realize that eventually there, there's no way they're going to overcome the mighty sea or God. Now, what do we learn from this scene? There's several things we learn here. I want to, want to bring to your attention The first thing I want you to see that we learn is that the counsel of man never wins against the counsel of God. Never. It's futile. What was the only way to stop the storm? Well, Jonah gave them the answer. Cast me overboard. What is the counsel in the minds of these sailors? Let's just row harder. We're just going to row harder. See if we can get to land. That was the counsel in the mind of man. And it didn't win in the counsel of God, did it? Proverbs 21.30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. God's counsel always prevails, and there is no overturning what He has ordained. Isaiah 14.27, the prophet says through the, through, through God, of God, he says, For the Lord of hosts has purpose, and who shall disannul it? At His hand... And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? That's a rhetorical question. It answers itself. The answer is nobody. If he has ordained it, who can annul it? If he has set it in motion, who can undo it? Spurgeon rightly said, when God appoints, none alters it. 
What God ordains cannot be overturned. And guess what God has ordained in this passage? He's ordained that Jonah is going overboard. Doesn't matter what they think about rowing, their idea, it ain't going to work. Which brings to another application with this, is that the strength of man never overturns God's power. See, the counsel of man never wins against God's counsel, nor does the strength of man ever win against the power of God. You know, it really is, it's laughable to think man's strength can somehow overpower the strength of the Almighty. It's insanity. It's insanity. Now, the sea by itself is a force no man can overcome, just in nature. How could any person think that a storm that is intentionally sent by God, tearing a ship apart, could be overcome by a few sailors with their mighty muscles, right? You see, the power of God is beyond measure. Jeremiah 10, 12, the prophet says, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding, stretched out the heavens. The power of God is beyond what we can fathom. He existed eternally and simply spoke and all creation comes into existence. That's a power you and I can't wrap our mind around. And yet man today thinks he can challenge God. (laughs) There's a reason, Psalm 2, God sits in the heavens and laughs. God laughs at man. Who do you think you are? That's what we see here. These sailors, who do they think they are? They're learning something here. Here's something else I thought is interesting by way of application from this text. Is that in order for God's wrath to be pacified in this scenario, guess what? Someone has to die, at least from their point of view. From their point of view. And this teaches us really and points us to a broader lesson and we look at the gospel of Christ. You understand that God's wrath is stirred and aimed at every sinner in this world. The Bible says that he is angry with the wicked. How often? Every day. He's filled with indignation against the wicked every day. We by nature are called in Ephesians 2, what? The children of wrath. The good news of the gospel of Christ is that Jesus, the perfect sinless one, has given himself to die on behalf of his sinful people to satisfy the wrath of God upon them. This is the gospel in a nutshell. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him, being Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Sin was foreign to Christ. So that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. Now understand, Jonah, he's not some sinless substitute. As we see, he's full of sin. But the truth remains in this situation that for God's wrath to cease on the sea and on the sailors, somebody is going to die from their perspective, and that's Jonah. The sailors are left with no other option. And in a sense, I think we see another gospel connection with Jesus and Pilate. You remember when Jesus was before Pilate? Pilate tried to get Jesus off the hook, didn't he? Tried this, tried that. But God's sovereignty cornered and narrowed it down 
where there was no other option but for Christ to be crucified and in his crucifixion bear the sins of his people. Acts chapter 2, Peter gives that big picture look of how God had predestined and predetermined that this was how Christ was going to die to redeem sinners and you by wicked hands slew him. And in a similar way, what do we find here? There's no other option but for Jonah to be cast into the sea and die from the sailor's perspective. Since God's will in the sea clearly is unstoppable, there's only one option left. It's the first option. And here's something I think we ought to always learn from this, is that whenever we row against the current of God's will, we often learn we should have just gone with God's way the first time, don't we? Which brings me to letter B. We see that God's way for the sailors was understood. They finally come to understand that God's will here is unstoppable. We can't overcome this. When the sailors finally reached the end of their own efforts, they understand clearly the way given by Jonah is what God has ordained. In verse 14, you'll notice notice a transition here with them. Therefore, they called out to who? The Lord. The Lord. They're calling out to the Lord. Take note of the difference from earlier in this text. In verse 4 and 5, who were they calling out to? Each man his God, little g. The gods that don't exist, the gods that are figments of their imagination. They're gods. But now they're calling on the God. They recognize from this account that the God of Jonah is indeed the God over the storm. And they call upon him with his covenant name, Yahweh. The same name that Jonah used in saying, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. And so as the God who rules the sea and the storm, they plead with Him alone. They are not looking to many gods anymore, but one God, the God who made it clear that there is no other way than to throw Jonah overboard. Because God has already said, this, He's already made clear that this is going to happen. He's ordained it to happen. He's showing them that, hey, your gods, they're nothing. I'm God. I love this passage in Isaiah. It communicates this message we see in this text. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. God says to the prophet Isaiah, Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Watch this. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, My counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. They're calling on the right God here. But notice in their plea, we see again their desire to not be held accountable for the life of Jonah. Verse 14, they pray to the Lord, lay not on us innocent blood. Because remember, from their viewpoint, casting Jonah into the sea is casting him into the grave. That's where Jonah's going to be buried. He's going to be buried out at sea. This is his death moment. In their heart, they know he's going to die, and it is going to be because of their hands that pick him up and throw him into the sea. Their hands. That's why they pray, Lord, lay not innocent blood on our hands. Hold us not accountable for this death. 
But here's something else that I love that they point out here, that all of us, I wish we could understand, I hope we do understand. And it's in verse 14. Notice what they recognize about God. For you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. You know what these sailors are seeing and what I've been pointing out throughout all of Jonah? They recognize and acknowledge the sovereignty of God here. I told you that's one of the undergirding themes in Jonah is God's sovereignty. He's sovereign over his people. He's sovereign over the sinner. He's sovereign over the storm, creation, the whale, everything. Everything. They acknowledge his sovereignty. Unlike their first delusion that the storm had upset one of their gods, they know this storm is of the true God who controls the storm. It's God who hurled the storm. It's God who has put the ship and their lives in peril. It is God who demands that Jonah be given to the sea. This is God's sovereignty prevailing over every detail in this scene. And they recognize this wonderful truth that God does what pleases Him. Mankind is so consumed with what pleases us. We want to do what pleases us. That's how we think, isn't it? But Christian, central to your life should be the fact that God does what pleases Him, and you ought to submit to that. It is an undergirding truth and theme throughout all of Scripture. The psalmist writes in Psalm 135 and verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth and in the sea and all deeps. Again, the psalmist says in Psalm 115, 13, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that, ple- all that He pleases. Now, this truth is both a comforting truth for us, but it's also a fearful truth. It ought to bring us to fear the Holy One, who is the sovereign over all things. And this is what the sailors come to see about Jonah's God. Our gods had no power, no sovereignty, but Jonah's God does. Calvin rightly comments here. John Calvin, he says, The sailors and the passengers were not only touched with the fear of God, but that they also had the impression that the God of Israel was the supreme king of heaven and earth. And that is, that is exactly who our God is. He is the king of heaven and earth. We don't have any reason to fear anything else in this world. Our God's king. His name is Christ Jesus. Recognizing the truth of God's sovereignty and the inability to overcome God's will, they are brought to the end of themselves. And truly, believer and non-believer, this is where we all need to be brought to, is to the end of ourselves. You see, man in his wisdom seeks to find some means of self-preservation or self-salvation. Man wants any kind of credit or something to attribute to victory and triumph that is of him, whether that be in salvation or any other kind of accomplishment or deliverance in life in this world. But here's what God does. God in his wisdom, he strips man of all of his wisdom. And power that we may see that God alone is to be credited and glorified in everything. For example, just think what this story would have been like if the sailors had successfully rowed to land. Think of it. They could go back to Tarshish and tell their story about, and we got in the boat and we were on our way out at sea, couldn't see landing more, and this ferocious storm comes over us, our ship is breaking up, we're throwing everything overboard, we have this, this man from Israel, 
Jonah. He believed in the one, he believed in the, the Lord Yahweh. That was the Lord's name. And he said, we got to throw him overboard and even save this ship. But guess what? We rode and made it to land. We saved him. We saved ourselves. See, the storm was so violent that the ship nearly tore up. And God makes it impossible for man to get any glory here. God demands his glory and manifests that he alone gets glory, both in the temporal deliverances of this life and in the eternal salvation of souls. You say, well, I go through a trial, I go through a storm, you come out of it. You know why you came out of it? Not because of you. Because of God alone. You say, well, I'm saved today. I believed on Christ. Don't you dare give yourself any credit for that. That glory still goes to God alone. You know, I hear often and I've heard often in church services that invitation time, the preacher will get up and say, God's done all he can do. Now it's up to you. Almost as if God does 99% and you get the other 1%. Let me tell you something, God ain't giving up that 1%. He don't do that. Yes, you do choose to believe. But the only reason you choose to believe is because he already so worked in you to believe. You don't believe me, read 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31. Paul says to these Christians, he says, because of him you are in Christ. What's that? He doesn't say because of you you are in Christ, because of him you are in Christ. Who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in what? The Lord. May we never forget this truth and may we always rejoice in it. So knowing that they must cast Jonah into the sea, they do so. Look at verse 15. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. Now I just, these kind of scenes just make me want to picture it. Just picture this happening. Here are these sailors. I don't know how many they are, but they come around Jonah, take hold of him, lift him up together go to the edge of the boat, and they, in unison, drop him overboard. Toss him in. The waves are raging. The wind is howling. And they toss this prophet into the sea. There he goes. There's the splash into the raging waves, never to be seen again. In their mind, they just put somebody to death. We can imagine maybe the anguish they've expressed in this event the anxiety that they've experienced, and maybe even their anxious curiosity as to whether this would really work or not. Which brings me to number three. We see the miracle of the powerful sovereign. The miracle of the powerful sovereign. You notice very plainly, the first thing we note about this is that the sea was instantly stilled. Instantly. The sea was instantly stilled. In verse 15, as soon as Jonah was gone, we read that the sea ceased from its raging. Give you any imagery of the New Testament? God in flesh on a raging sea saying, peace be still, and it's calm at a moment. Jesus. But can you imagine the relief of these sailors? Can you picture this scene for a moment? In an instant, the wind that was howling and raging is gone. The waves that were battering the ship and tearing it to pieces, all of a sudden, 
You know how soothing it is to be on peaceful water. It's a wonderful thing of God's creation. And just imagine all of a sudden it's just peace. Peace on the sea. The clouds fade away. The sun beams through. The blue sky becomes visible. An instant transformation of the entire weather scene has taken place. And it's the immediate stilling of the storm that makes all things clear to them. Now understand, if this had taken an hour or two, they could have chalked it up to luck or chance or just regular, regular weather pattern. But God wouldn't allow that to happen either. He fixes it instantly. Instantly. And it proves to them a couple things that we've already noted. One, that Jonah really was the problem. There's no doubt about it now. Two, the God of Jonah really was, is the creator of all, and they called on the right God. This God had the power and purpose over the storm the whole time, just as he does on all times. The psalmist said in Psalm 107, 29 and 30, He, God, made the storm to be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. I know that's a different context, but we can see it apply to these sailors here. What a mighty God this is. You see, this further shows that though men may fight against the will of God in a plethora of ways, the only way to true victory is submission to the will of Almighty. And I want that to be known to us today. Because it may be that you're trying to overturn or outrun God in some way, and you're not going to prevail in the end. It would be a whole lot better if you submitted to Him today by faith. Is God making clear to you that salvation is what you need, but you're fighting Him about it? That you're a sinner? That you need to be saved? And I can tell you right now that God don't lose that fight either. He goes and gets whom He wills. Submit to Him by faith. Look into Christ. Perhaps it's something else. Maybe it's a sin that you're cherishing, trying to keep it, though God's rebuked you for it, and it's bringing a lot of trouble in your life. Repent of that and turn to Him. Don't go on like Jonah. Don't harden yourself. Repent to that and turn to Him. Submit to His will and see the glory of His power just as these sailors did on the, on the sea that day. Notice with me lastly, we see lastly in verse 16 with these sailors that they were deeply struck. They were deeply struck by all of this. In verse 16, we see a wonderful response from them. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Now, a few times throughout this chapter, we've seen fear in them. What were they afraid of first? The storm. That's a fear for their life. They were afraid. Later, when Jonah confesses that his God is the God of the sea and he's the reason, now they're afraid of Jonah's judgment, this judgment that's come on them. But now we see something different. We see a fear, a different fear in the one true God. With this fear of the Lord, we read that they came to sacrifice unto him. We read they offered a sacrifice and made vows. Now, this evidently is a description of what they did after they reached land. They can't make it on the boat. But once they get to land, probably Tarshish, if they went on that far, they go and make sacrifice to the Lord and make vows to the Lord. And you imagine them pulling into the Tarshish port. The ship is beat up, wasn't, wasn't in the same condition as when they left. These sailors come back to land and everybody's wondering, where's your stuff? Where's your cargo? Where's your profit? Why are you running 
I'll have to make a sacrifice so quick. Imagine how this testimony might have impacted some of the others that they came across, even in Tarshish, if that's eventually where they ended up. You see, while they did not know the proper procedures of Levitical sacrifices, they understood that a sacrifice needed to be made to God. These vows were given not to false gods, but to the one true God. Now, many question in this point, were these men actually converted or just deeply affected in some way? There's some debate about that. It would be dogmatic one way or the other. Because when you look at it, natural man can manifest some of these characteristics, especially after a dire situation. Somebody that survives a car wreck is always praising and thanking God, right? Maybe even committing their life to Him, but that doesn't make them born again. They needed to know Christ. Natural man can behave in this way. But I think it is very possible that they were converted to the one true God because of how they respond in this situation. I'm not going to be dogmatic one or the other, but regardless, this experience would have made a lasting impact on them. With this, there's another great lesson for us. It's that God's work is not dependent on man's will. God's work is not dependent on man's will. And I'm so thankful for that because I fail at that so often. And I know all of us do. R.T. Kendall rightly comments, it says, The fact that the church is not what she ought to be at this present moment does not mean that God cannot use us. For God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line, and that is precisely what happened in the case of Jonah. Jonah, understand, was in disobedience, and yet God still used him to get glory. I'm thankful that God doesn't depend on me being perfect, although that's not a reason or an excuse to do whatever I want, but it's a comfort and assurance that I can get up here and blunder with the Word of God. He's still going to use it. Many times I've said things, I thought, man, why in the world I say that? It keeps me up at night. And if you're a preacher, you know what I'm talking about. But God still uses us despite our weaknesses and despite our failures. You see, these sailors weren't impacted because of Jonah's obedience, but because of his disobedience. What's that show us? It shows us that God brings good even out of the bad. He's, in, he's sovereign over that. Genesis 50 and verse 20, the example of Joseph is probably the most plain to us in Scripture. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We know the story, how Joseph's brothers, they worked evil against, against Joseph, but God meant their evil for a good that could not be seen in the moment. Doesn't make God accountable for their evil, they're accountable for it. But God's not bound by it. And with this, I think it's important for us to understand even in Jonah's case, that we cannot mistake fruitfulness for having good communion with God. Because even though there's fruit here of God's glory and grace, it doesn't mean Jonah was right with God. It simply shows us that God is not dependent on us to accomplish His purposes, even though He has chosen to use us for His purposes. One last quote I'll close with from Sinclair Ferguson. He says, there are times in our lives when the Lord will employ us in His service despite our disobedience to demonstrate that the grace, the fruit, and the glory are entirely His. Entirely His. 
Christian, we learn a lot from Jonah in this first chapter. We got one more verse, and I wanted to save that because there's a lot to bring out of the fish. We'll look at that next week. But what we see with Jonah through this rebellion, through all of it, we see how God sovereignly worked in every little detail, despite Jonah's disobedience, to bring himself glory and affect other people even. That would take his glory to an entirely new nation. And may we learn from Jonah not to react like him. We need to be obedient to his will. We need to trust him with his will. We need to recognize the providence of God in all things and know that that is always the best path forward in our Christian life. Today, you may be lost and undone. Maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you don't know if you're saved or not. I can tell you right now that Christ alone is salvation. And if you are to have it, it will only be in Him. Because He alone has died on the cross, bearing God's wrath for sinners. He alone is risen from the dead, conquering the grave. And that is all of grace. The Bible says, repent and believe on Christ and you shall be saved. And even if you do come to repent and believe on Christ, you will come to learn that God is the one who is at work in you to do that. Repent, believe, trust Him, walk with Him. May we learn from Jonah this morning. Let's stand to our feet as we close in prayer and a song. Father, we bow before you, thanking you for the great grace that you have bestowed upon us. We're so thankful for the Word of God that you've given us your revelation of truth of yourself. Father, so that we can know you. But before we can ever know you, Lord, we have to know who we are. We are sinful, sinful people, worthy of your judgment and wrath. But you, God, in grace and mercy have provided salvation through your Son, Christ Jesus, alone. I pray that, Father, if there's anyone in this room that does not know Christ in their heart, never has been born again, I pray that today might be the day they would come to truly know you by faith alone in Christ. Help us who are Christians to learn from Jonah, Lord. We ought not to live the way Jonah did. We ought not to go down the path of rebellion. Help us, Father, to be useful and faithful servants in your kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen.